Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following are a set of three devotions aimed at explaining both the overall purpose and some of the specifics of the pattern of Christian worship we use on Sunday mornings at Good News. Those devotions were delivered on Sunday, October 22, 2017, on the basis of Romans 1, verses 15 through 17. It was sort of a pivotal moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. See, he had spent the better part of the last two decades traveling all over the Mediterranean world telling people about Jesus. He had visited all kinds of cities, some of them big, some of them small, some of them significant, some of them not. But now Paul had it in his mind that he was going to go to Rome. And in Paul's day, as far as cities go, Rome had no equal. Rome was the pinnacle of power and wealth and glory and influence. Compared to every other city, or compared to Rome, every, every other city in the Roman Empire was sort of like playing down in the minor leagues. Rome stood head and shoulders above the rest, and now Paul had it in his mind that he was going to go to Rome. So what would be his plan for when he got there? Would he come up with some fresh new material to tell the people there? Would he completely rework his brand or refine his sales pitch to really appeal to the culturally, intellectually elite people of the capital city, what was Paul going to do? It's an important question, not just for Paul, but also for us. Because all of us have those pivotal moments in our lives where we want to be able to tap into some source of power, where we want to have an impact, where we want to have influence and produce change. Maybe that's simply in our own hearts and lives. Maybe it's in the lives of our family members. Maybe it's with a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, or just our community in general. And so the question is, how do we do it? Well, as Paul prepared to travel to Rome, he had a plan. In his letter to the Romans, which sort of laid the foundation for his future visit, Paul said this. This is Romans 1, verses 15 through 17. He said, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That was the plan. Nothing new. Just the same old, same old, you might say. Paul's plan was simply to preach the gospel, that good news that God's approval and our salvation do not in any way depend on our work, but are only tied to the work of our Savior Jesus, his life and death, that gospel. That was Paul's plan. And that's a pretty surprising plan when you stop to think about it. You see, that gospel message really contradicted everything that Rome stood for. Rome exalted power. The gospel exalts weakness. Rome exalted fame and glory. The gospel exalts shame and humility. The values of Rome say might makes right. Take what is yours and trample on anyone who is standing in the way. The gospel tells us that God saved us by yielding to the evil intentions of others and surrendering what is rightfully his. 
that's the message that Paul went to Rome to preach. Because Paul knew something about that gospel. The rest of the world might take one look at the gospel and sort of throw it onto the trash heap as something completely worthless, but Paul knew that God took that very same gospel into his almighty hand and God used it to accomplish his most significant purpose in people's lives, namely the salvation of their souls. Paul knew that God took the gospel and used it to deliver to human hearts the very approval that Jesus had won with his life and his death. That's why that was Paul's plan. That's why that remains our plan. As we gather here on Sunday mornings, our purpose is to put the gospel of Jesus Christ on center stage. The hour that we spend together each week is going to be overflowing with gospel from the very first minute to the very last minute. To do otherwise would not so much be wrong as it would be a complete waste. A completely missed opportunity to take the one thing that has the most power to do the most important thing for the most people all at the same time and to just leave it sitting on the sidelines, so to speak. It'd be like taking your star quarterback, and not because of some unfortunate collarbone injury, but intentionally taking him out of the game, putting in the much inferior backup instead. We will not leave the gospel on the sidelines. We will put it on center stage. And today we're going to talk about some of the specific ways in which we do that. Open your service folder up to page number five. As we come into God's house each week to stand in the presence of our holy God, what gives us the right to do that? Where do we find our identity, our value, and our worth? Is it in our moral behavior for the past week? Is it in the things that we've achieved and accomplished? No, it is in our baptism. Our baptism is when God took our natural identity and he completely changed it. He adopted us into his family and clothed us in the perfection of Jesus. And so each week we start with the invocation and the sign of the cross. Two things that for many of us we experienced for the very first time at our baptism. As we walk into this room each week, carrying with us an armful of all of the sins that we've committed during the past week, what do we do with those sins? What do we do about them? Where do we find strength to fight against them? It's not going to come from some motivational pep talk. It's not going to come from a renewed resolve or commitment to do better. It's not simply that if we know better, we'll do better. No, instead, we, we do all over again the thing that first happened to us at our baptism. We take that sinful nature that's inside of us and we kill it all over again. We do that as we confess our sins. Then we sort of just sit back and let God breathe new and renewed life into that new and holy being that God has created inside of us and that happens through the absolution, through the announcement of God's full, free, unconditional forgiveness. In response to that, renewed status that we enjoy before our God, we respond with prayer. Joyfully and confidently, we know that we can rely on the mercy of our Lord as we bring him our requests. And then finally, as we turn to page number six, in response to that renewed status before God, we sing. We celebrate the way that heaven itself celebrates. 
Jesus once said that the angels in heaven rejoice over just one sinner who repents. Just think how happy heaven must be when an entire room full of sinners repents. And so we sing the song that the angels first sang on the night of Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. Why do we do these things? Not because we have to. Not because God has mandated them for us step by step. We could do other things. But these things put the gospel on center stage. And the gospel is still the power of God for salvation. The gospel still delivers God's approval for Jesus' sake. The gospel still takes troubled human hearts and makes them still. It was a pivotal moment in the life of Martin Luther. See, Luther had spent the better part of the last three decades preaching and teaching people about Jesus in his country of Germany, including the Jewish people who lived in Germany. At a time when there was lots of anti-Jewish sentiment going around, Luther actually argued that Christians needed to be kind and needed to show love to those Jewish people as they continued to share the gospel with them. And yet during those three decades, what happened in Germany was very similar to what we heard happened in Palestine in Jesus' day. The Jewish people steadfastly refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so way at the end of his life, in 1543, Luther wrote a publication entitled On the Jews and Their Lies, filled with condescension and hostility toward the Jewish people. As we near the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, you might even hear a thing or two about Luther being accused of being anti-Semitic, He's even been accused of serving as the inspiration for Adolf Hitler and what he did to the Jewish people in Germany almost four centuries later. Those accusations and those connections are, are completely unfounded, and yet the whole thing is sort of a big black eye on Luther's lasting legacy, which I suppose to a certain extent is okay, because it's a good reminder that Luther was human, that Luther made mistakes, that Luther's words and Luther's writings were not divinely inspired. But what are we as Lutherans to make of this whole thing? Well, it's important for us, first of all, to realize that Luther's frustration with the Jewish people was religious and not racial. The reason he was so upset was not because of their unique customs and culture. It was because they had for so long refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. The unfortunate thing was that after three decades, Luther's patience for their conversion ran out. In that publication that I mentioned, he actually called for the burning of synagogues, leveling their homes, forcibly taking away their religious publications, and if necessary, driving them from the country. Sad thing. Luther lost sight of what he knew to be true, what we heard about in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1. Luther lost sight of the fact that the gospel alone could accomplish what neither sword, nor flame, nor bomb, nor bullet possibly can. We might say that Luther had correctly identified the problem, but he had proposed a terribly misguided solution. Again, it's an important issue, 
Because just as in Jesus' day and just as in our day, the gospel, or just as in Luther's day, the gospel will, in our day, face opposition. It will face opposition from an increasingly secularized world around us. It will face opposition from other religions, including the religion of having no religion at all. We might at times wonder how in the world are we as Christians and how in the world are we as a church to withstand the onslaughts of the enemy, much less have any hope of expanding and growing the kingdom of God. It's important for us to remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. That it doesn't depend on force or, or coercion. It doesn't come from worldly power or influence. It's not from making sure that we have our kind of person sitting in the White House or on Capitol Hill or in the local school board. It's the gospel that has all the power that we need. And so when we get together on Sunday mornings, we are going to roll out not just a morsel of the gospel, not just a few nibbles, but an entire menu, an entire rich feast of the gospel for you to hear. Three readings every Sunday. One from the Old Testament, one from one of the New Testament letters, and one from one of the gospels, those books that tell the story of Jesus' life. I don't know if you were aware of this, but those three readings that we hear every Sunday, I don't just pick those out randomly each week. There's a schedule. There's a calendar that we follow that the Christian church has followed for centuries, a calendar that ensures that each and every year we will review, we will talk about the most important things that Jesus did and the most important things that Jesus said. It ensures, it guarantees that when you show up each week, the primary topic for our attention is not all of the ways in which you need to improve as a human being. It ensures that when you show up each week, what's on the agenda is not current events, not dealing with the latest hot-button social issue. It ensures that when you show up each week, you don't need to simply listen to whatever thing happened to be on my mind that week. No, by following that schedule for the three readings and by having the sermon each week based on one of those three readings, it ensures that each week the main topic at hand is the gospel. And as we hear those three readings each week, we do and say all kinds of things that highlight the blessings that we expect to receive through the hearing of the word of God. If you look on page 8, in your service folder. The service of the word begins with this greeting. The Lord be with you, and you say, and also with you. That's more than just wishful thinking. That's more than just the churchy way of saying, hey, how's it going? Not bad, how are you? That's a statement of fact about what is going to happen as we hear the word of God, that Jesus will be here with us to bless us as he promises. We continue with the prayer of the day, a very specific prayer that asks for the very specific blessings we are expecting to receive as we hear those specific readings from the Word of God. We read that Old Testament lesson. We make use of one of the Bible's 150 Psalms, the Old Testament hymn book. We read that second reading, and then as we prepare for really the pinnacle of the service of the Word, a lesson from the Gospels that brings to our attention Something Jesus did, something Jesus said, we prepare. We stand in respect. We sing, Alleluia, praise the Lord, as we anticipate hearing that reading. And then once we've heard it in response, we say, Praise be to you, O Christ. Exactly the kinds of things you would do if an incredibly important person walked through the door. 
which is exactly what Jesus is doing as we hear his word. Then having heard that word of God, we respond. We respond by speaking the truth about God that we believe using one of our creeds. We respond by praying, and then we respond by gathering the offering. Maybe the greatest demonstration on Sunday morning of the power of the gospel in a world completely overrun by greed and materialism. We hear the gospel, and it's as if our purses and our wallets just fly open. We are so eager to give out of gratitude for what we have received and because we want others to have what we have and to know what we know. Why do we do these things? Not because God has mandated them to us. We could do other things. But these things put the gospel on center stage for us. And the gospel is still the power of God. The gospel is still how God delivers the approval he has for sinners for Jesus' sake. The gospel still takes troubled human hearts and makes them still. So what is the pivotal moment in your life that you're going through right now? Is it a relationship that's falling apart? Is it health challenges? Is it a particular sin that you know is going to destroy your life and the lives of those around you if you don't get it under control? Are you overwhelmed with grief at the recent loss of a loved one? Whatever that pivotal moment might be, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, the gospel of Jesus is at least part of the solution. And when it comes to our biggest problems, our problem of sin, our problem of death, our problem of guilt before God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the whole solution, the only solution. That's why we want you here each week. Not because by being here you're doing something for God, but because you're missing out on something so important if you're not. The final way in which our service puts the gospel on center stage is as we celebrate Holy Communion. This is anything but a, a light snack at a time in the morning where our stomachs might be grumbling. This is far more than a few tokens or trinkets that help us think about Jesus a little bit, sort of like the cross around your neck might do. No, in and with the bread and wine that we receive in Holy Communion, Jesus promises us that he gives and we receive his body and blood. Amen. The very same body and blood that he gave into death on the cross. Think about that for a second. Every time we celebrate communion, we are celebrating Jesus' death. Name one other historical figure where the thing that you remember, the day that you celebrate, is not, that, not their birth, not some important thing that they did, but their death. Take Martin Luther, for example. When we think of Martin Luther, the one day that, if anybody knows, it's October 31st, the day where he did something significant, the day when he sparked the Reformation. We don't stop to remember his death. Off the top of my head, I couldn't even tell you what it is. But Jesus' death, of course, is different. Jesus' death was not the end of the story for him, but by his resurrection from the dead, God the Father declared that Jesus' death was a full and complete payment for our sin. In other words, God the Father declared that Jesus' body and blood were able to do what all the gold and all the silver in all the world could not do. 
purchase our freedom, pay for our sins. And so that's why we remember Jesus' death as we celebrate communion. And as we do, we again do and say all kinds of things that indicate what is going on and the blessings that we expect to receive. If you look at page 15 in your service folder, we again begin this section of the service by saying, the Lord be with you and also with you. We are confident that as we do this, the Lord himself is with us. Page 16, we sing that song you just heard, Holy, 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 which is really two different songs mashed together into one. The first one is Holy, 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 which the Bible tells us the angels in heaven sing in the presence of the Lord. The second one is Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest, the song that the crowds of people sang on Palm Sunday as Jesus entered Jerusalem. That word Hosanna means God save us. So as we sing that song, we are confessing that Heaven itself is coming down to earth. Jesus himself is with us. And as Jesus arrives in his body and blood, we say, Hosanna, save us, rescue us from our enemies, rescue us from sin, rescue us from death. Do you think he'll say yes? He's already given us the answer to that question the night before he died, as he instituted this meal called Holy Communion, in which he promised that with the bread and the wine, he would be giving us his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so we repeat those important words, confident that they have the power to produce the very thing that they promised. Then we sing that song, Lamb of God, a song that not so much focuses simply on the fact that Jesus is here, but what he is here to do. Just as that Passover lamb shed its blood and that blood was smeared on the doorposts of the Israelites so that the angel of death passed them by as they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, so also the blood of Jesus smeared all over his cross of wood has caused death to pass us by. Finally, having received the precious gift of communion on the very back page of your service folder, we often sing the song of Simeon. Those words that Simeon saying, as he held in his own hands the newborn Savior when Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple just 40 days after his birth. We sing that we too can depart this place in peace because we too have seen with our own eyes, even touched with our own hands, tasted with our own mouths the salvation of our Lord. Why do we do these things? Not because God has mandated them. We could do other things. We do these things because they put the gospel on center stage. In fact, just recently, one of our confirmation students completed an assignment where he had to take one of our service folders, page all the way through it, and indicate the spots in the service that, first of all, proclaimed God's law, his commands, his expectations of us, and then secondly, where the service proclaimed God's gospel. When he turned it in and I paged through it, I was reminded once again of how valuable these things are, these things that we do and that Christians have done for centuries. The word gospel was written all over the place on every single page. The things we do, our pattern of worship, puts the gospel on center stage, and that gospel is still the power of God for salvation. That gospel still delivers to you God's approval for Jesus' sake, that gospel still takes troubled human hearts and makes them still. 
Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.